Dr. Gawler, it's wonderful to be here with you. Thanks, Will. I'm really touched that uh, a gentleman who's worked in this uh, area of integrative care and, and holistic approach to health and for 35 years, uh, Order of Australia medal holder, all sorts of wonderful titles, is taking the time to speak to this humble website. So yeah, I'm pleasure. Most grateful. Um, I guess I wanted to, to start just with a, a brief uh, really introduction to your own journey. I know it was about 35 years ago that you were diagnosed with a, a, a bone cancer. Yeah. Perhaps you just want to take us through the the um, the, 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 the summary with the happy ending of sure. that experience for you. <laughs> yeah, well it sort of got worse before it got better, that's for sure. I had a um, osteogenic sarcoma, a sort of particular form of bone cancer, diagnosed in 75 uh, and as a consequence had my right leg amputated through the hip uh, at the start of that year. Uh, at the time Oh, I was told I had a 5% chance of being alive in five years' time. Uh, and I sort of comforted myself and thought, well, that's reasonable odds. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, the mind sort of has a big impact in your future and how you approach it. And I, I think because I identified with that element of hope, in a sense, I, I sort of looked forward and, uh, and was fairly optimistic, which was my basic nature anyway. Um, and that in some way helped offset the enormous uh, changes that came about through you know, having a leg amputate. I was very physical and an uh, active athlete and involved as a veterinarian in treating horses and so a lot of the things, most of the things that I was passionate about at the time became either very difficult or impossible. And again I think that points to the mind because you know if I'd focused on what I'd lost through, through that surgery uh, I think it would have been very easy to become quite depressed and despondent and um, had a really thoroughly miserable life. Sure. <laughs> and I think, fortunately, I had enough sort of clarity of mind at that point in my life even to see that as an option and to recognise that going down that path was going to be just thoroughly miserable. Sure. And had the capacity to decide that I could reinvent my life and sort of make a whole new start. And um, and I think that, in, in a sense, I was helped because I had been so physical, I think. Um, I'd been very athletic and I'd done a lot in that sort of area. Um, and I, in a way, I think that helped me to sort of put that aside and think, well, what, I, I'm in this whole new situation. Um, what will I do now? Had you been meditating prior <clears throat> to diagnosis? No, but I was interested in it. I'd had a sort of long-standing sort of spiritual thread running pretty strongly through my life, you know, growing up in an Anglican family and I took it on a fairly simplistic spiritual view, you know, that you be a good boy and say your prayers, sure. go to church on Sundays and life will be sweet and, sure. um, and it was a bit of a shock when <laughs> I sort of reflected and I thought, well, yeah, I certainly haven't been any saint but I haven't done anything too uh, outrageous. Sure. And, uh, and this whole sort of change in my life and some of the other events that went with it just didn't match that sort of fairly simplistic formula that sure. you know, Sunday school had given to me. And that had sort of propelled me from an earlier age, actually, uh, to looking into the truth of the matter, you know, to inquiring into the, you know, what really was going on with the fact that we're alive and have a conscious awareness and all these possibilities. Um, and I think that spiritual view certainly informed 
the way I responded to the illness and helped me to transform, you know, what was a real major calamity into something that actually, you know, looking back on, I can be grateful about. Sure. Now, it would have been nice to have learnt what I learnt through the illness without having to have the illness, but sure. I was too thick for that. Yeah. <laughs> so, that sounds you know, familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I think that's the thing. It's, it's really sad in a way that often when people are basically well, you know, you take life for granted and, um, you know, just go along almost in automatic without questioning things too deeply. Sure. Um, and there's nothing like a major trauma to <laughs> shake all that up and uh, cause you this introspection. And I, you know, I see that so often in the people I've worked with since that, um, you know, we'll look back and say that the cancer that they developed was a really helpful thing, actually. And, I haven't heard too many people get excited about the actual initial diagnosis. Sure. <laughs> I think for most, and I think that's the point. I think for most of us, it really shakes up our view of our mortality or immortality, um, and presents us with the fact that life's very uh, tenuous. And if you regard it as precious, then it's you know this paradox that life's very precious, but it's. It uh, spans very uh, uncertain, For sure. and so I think you know major trauma and, and particularly life-threatening trauma, like a um, major illness, can actually be very helpful to help you to question the, what's going on in your life and For sure. what you do with each day. So the, the phrase "wake-up call" is—it's almost a, a cliche. It's used quite commonly, but certainly, yeah, it sounds like it was your experience. Yeah, but cancers are strong enough thing to cut through a cliche that it really delivers and um, yeah I mean I'm, I'm fortunate I can sort of look back with 35 years and laugh but um, um, at the time it was quite tricky because having gone through that initial experience then within a year the cancer reoccurred and that was that was actually more threatening even the initial diagnosis because with that particular cancer in those days, uh, it was pretty aggressive and pretty uniformly fatal within about six months, sure. and there was no medical treatment. So that that's what then propelled me into looking at well, what else is possible? And you must have felt, presumably, the the, the positive of the amputation was that it was resolving the issue, that it was part of supporting your overall health. That to have that setback, that must have been. A huge blow. Yeah. I'm fascinated as to just if you can explore or talk more about where or how did you find that sense of optimism or, or hope or positivity that there was still possibility? Yeah, yeah, it's a good observation. I think um, myself, like a lot of people, uh, I found the relapse quite traumatic. You know, I think it's, I mean, obviously a first diagnosis is traumatic, but you know, then if you have treatment and you're in remission, you sort of feel like you've got a second lease on life. And um, and then I and, I and for myself, I because I had this sort of very um, spiritually informed view of what was going on in my life, I, I I really did struggle with the thought that I'd wasted an opportunity. You know, when the secondaries came back, I could sort of look back on that interim year, and I felt like there was a lot in that year that I hadn't done as thoroughly as I would have liked to. You know, I'd st I started I actually started meditating when. Um, when I had my leg amputated, as I went into hospital, I, I actually went from having had the idea of meditating for years prior to that to actually starting to do a little bit of practice in a pretty befuddled way. But I gave it a go, and um, and and then I and I 
started attending to my diet, but I, I hadn't actually really taken it all that seriously. Sure. And so, and also I think it was very interesting, and I think my experience again might be reasonably typical. For about six months after the treatment, the, 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 surgery, the amputation, I was quite intent on looking into my life, and then I just got caught up in the normal sort of things again. Sure. And I was just about to go back to work actually when the secondaries arrived. Sure. And so I had that sense of, yeah, having lost the plot a bit in a way. Um, so there's that sort of sense of guilt and a um, bit of shame to, to sort of sort out. Sure. And I find this interesting because I hear a lot of people from the outside criticising um, the notion that people take responsibility for their own situation because that might create guilt. True. Um, with that sort of notion being that they didn't have it to start with. Sure. <laughs> it's <laughs> an interesting think, point. Well, yeah, it's much more important to acknowledge that guilt's often common. And, you know, when you've got a lifestyle-based illness like cancer, where clearly the most scientifically recognises cause of the illness are to do with how you live your life, you know, whether you smoke or not, whether you, what sort of, how much alcohol you drink, what, what you eat, and personality type. And then so, the so personality type can come into it. tough on oneself personality type can be correlated with... Uh, Very strongly, sure. yeah. And I mean, most, most people who get diagnosed with cancer identify with all those risk factors. Sure. And, and their personal attributes. Sure. So, you know, I think it's foolish to say, well, let's not talk about it because it might raise issues of guilt. It's better to say we need to talk about it because there are issues like that around and people need to get a perspective and I think the perspective I came to was that you know I, I think myself like other people you, 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 unless you're completely off your tree which not many people are really you always do the best you can in any given circumstances so I always try and help people who are smokers say and say well why did you take up smoking you know like the, 30 years ago, did you sit down and think, well, now, if I really work at this and I smoke a packet of cigarettes a day, in 30 years' time, I'll give myself lung cancer. And I haven't met anybody who, who tried that. I mean, there's much easier ways to kill yourself than that. Absolutely. More <laughs> um, fun ways, probably. Too. Yeah, and so most people take up smoking because they wanted to piss their parents off or they wanted sure. to show they'd grown up or they wanted to impress the girlfriend or it was a way of managing stress or they thought that it kept the weight off, or there's all sorts of reasons why people do it, which are good enough reasons, um, but, you know, there's just that that particular way of trying to achieve that aim comes at a cost, and, you know, the cost can be quite tricky, can be quite high. So it's a matter, I think, of helping people to look back on what they did and coming to terms with their own choices and their own life, sure. and then saying, well, here you are in this situation today, but you've got lots more choices about what happens for the rest of the day, next week, next month, next year. And, and that's where you know, that phrase for me is just so integral and important to anyone creating health for themselves, particularly in the sort of severe situations of diagnosis of cancer or a brain tumor, is to take complete responsibility for the circumstances you find yourself in and that might include taking responsibility for feelings of guilt even. Yeah, yeah. To actually recognise well, that here, here is something to, to work with, to, to understand better what is happening. Yeah, well, I, 
I always think you've got to have a real flexibility in this well. I think that, you know, the, well, probably the people who are listening to this and are interested in, you know, your story and your website are people like that. But not everybody's got that capacity and I think that's where, you know, when you're in, in the process of helping people, you have to have some, um, well, just the flexibility of recognising people are different. Sure. And you know, I'd say in an ideal world, sure, take as much responsibility for things as you can. But some people just don't have the inner strength, or you know, they're too freaked out, or they're just not ready for that. Um, so it's 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 a very interesting thing, sort of working with people as I've done over 30 years to sort of find try and find out where people are at and where they're starting from and what they're capable of. Sure. And I think this is sort of compounded these days because. People often who are diagnosed with cancer, the, the actual medical system, the way it runs is often quite disempowering. Um, and, and so the notion, and I think part of that is the fear that people feel. Mm. So, you know, often a, a cancer diagnosis, and particularly brain tumors, I think probably freak people out. It's got a, a, certain, bit more than uh, most. a certain power to it, doesn't it? The yeah, whole, the whole yeah, yeah. Sort of, well, it's an interesting thing, you know, I might mention it now because I might get back to it, but I, when I started working with groups, cause just, just to get the story over and done with, I, I sort of got secondaries and then was told quite clearly, and I knew because I'd been into the medical libraries as, you know, as a vet, I could uh, check out all that stuff, and, and it was clear that there wasn't a medical solution, so I looked in other places and got into meditation and diet and, you know, the power of the mind and all sorts of healing modalities and was fortunate to recover. And then in 81 started running uh, a sort of a lifestyle-based uh, cancer self-help group. And lifestyle-based in the sense that we weren't talking directly about the medical sort of model of treatment or the complementary and alternative therapies, although we sort of talked to people about how they could navigate their way through those things. But we were really teaching people what I think is best described as lifestyle medicine is like what to eat, exercise, you know, obviously give up smoking, talking about alcohol, exercise. Positive um, attitude and emotional Yeah, approach. and, and emotional health and, and, the, sure. and, and the spiritual connection with all that. Sure. Um, and that sort of uh, developed a great deal. But when I, when I started running those groups in 81, um, I don't know, I, I think I had, like a lot of people, I thought, oh gosh, you know, these brain tumours, that, that's sort of right at the heart of the matter, if I can use a, a, sort, of a, a, a sort of a cross uh, simile. Well, it's interesting, you know, the Tibetans, when they, when they say, where's your mind, they, they put their hand over their heart. Sure. They don't, they don't put their head, head at their head. So anyway, well, the, I, I the thought... Heart, just to jump in there for a moment, the Institute of Heart Math has now established that the electromagnetic field of the heart is 5,000 times greater than that of the brain. Yeah, so that's interesting, it's isn't it? a one pointer that there is something going on here in our heart yeah, that is actually yeah. more powerful than our yeah, brains. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, there's no doubt. And um, um, yeah, Sagar Rinpoche has been my sort of main teacher, Tibetan Buddhist Lama, the author of the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. He, he talks about mind-heart. He sort of links them and puts the two together. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I, th I thought that these brain tumours would be quite difficult, but in actual fact, we've had some very good results with it. I think particularly that they respond well to the meditation and if the diet's right as well. 
Um, we've seen quite a number of people who had really quite difficult situations who had good recoveries. And they actually turned out to be easier than I thought, you know, in the relative scale of sort of cancers that people have recovered from. Well, similar to yourself, I, I've been blessed with a natural optimism and, and, and one silver lining to the uh, diagnosis of, of a brain tumour is that uh, when it's healed, there's a certain um, achievement there. You know, if, if you heal a cold or the flu, it's no yeah, big deal. Yeah, who cares? Exactly. <laughs> but if you've healed a brain tumour, yeah, so it adds yeah, an extra little bit of spark to the process. A little bit of cachet and yeah. you know, it looks good on the CV. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. And I think the thing is, I mean, because perhaps we can talk about that a bit. I, see, I think when you talk about healing, there's, there's these three spheres in which you can come from, the, from a, when we talk about cancer specifically. There's what conventional medicine has to offer, and you know, that can be really quite useful, obviously. Then there's what I would describe as complementary and alternative medicine, which in the States they use the acronym of CAM, you know, complementary and alternative medicine. In Australia, we only talk about complementary medicine. It's interesting, the alternative stuff's become such a pejorative Sure. Uh, it's such a put-down word that people tend not to use it. Sure. So you see literature out of the States in that area, and it's CAM, and in Australia it's just complementary medicine. It's quite quite interesting. But both those modalities of help, you know, which have validity in their own right, are still involve things being done for people. So when you were talking about taking control and sort of being in, uh, empowering yourself, you can do that by inquiring about the options you have in those two fields and, and then deciding to commit yourself to something and that can be really useful. Sure. But then the third area is what I would describe as lifestyle medicine, which is to do with what people can do to help themselves. Uh, and that's like the diet, exercise, emotional health, um, the power of the mind, meditation, the spiritual view. And that, that's the area that I've been really interested in. And when, when people are looking for healing, I think these days it makes sense if you're diagnosed with cancer in the Western world to go to the Western medical system and get an accurate diagnosis and a, a, and a treatment proposal and to decide whether that's something you want to commit to or not, you know, whether it makes sense, you know. Sure. If it was a broken bone, you know, the Western medicine treatment proposals like, yes, please, yeah. can I have it straight away? Thanks very much. I'm not going to try naturopathy with that. We'll go with the Yeah, cost. yeah, yeah. We, we, we'll, we'll sort of, we don't need to hesitate. But yeah. I think in cancer medicine, it's clear that very often the equation of cost and benefit is clouded. You know, in, 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 in the broken leg, the, the equation of cost and benefit's extreme. You know, the benefit's tremendous, the risk's very low, sure. even if it involves surgery, you'd say, yeah, well, if I need surgery for a broken leg, yes, please, I'll, I'll have it. Sure. It would be very unusual to, to think that that wouldn't make sense. But I think in, in cancer medicine, that, that equation is often quite difficult because the blurring between cost and benefit can be quite uh, muddy and, and, and unclear. Um, and I think it's unfortunate that the, the, the role of chemotherapy specifically has changed in the Western world where it used to be people needed to be talked into it. These days it's more like they need to be talked out of it. Sure. <laughs> um, and when you look at its 
its overall benefits, they're actually quite marginal taken across the major cancers. You know, there's good studies on that. Indeed. Um, yeah, that should start with 3% in terms of efficacy over... Uh, yeah, well, they, yeah, if we're thinking of the same study, that's one, the one I'm aware of was done by Morgan and his colleagues about 2005 in Sydney, and they showed that the overall benefit for 22 of the major cancers, you know, including things like prostate and, and breast, and I think, I think brain was in there, uh, although they don't use it so much. But some of the cancers that are known to respond to chemotherapy even were in there, and they showed that overall the, the benefit of having chemotherapy improved survival rates by about 2.7, 2.9%, um, which to most people is a staggeringly low figure. Indeed. Um, and, it, and it raises that question of if you're interested in long-term survival, how, you know, well, that, that's, not a, that's not a great impact. Sure, and yet, because even if it does push you over the line of that five years, um, inevitably chemotherapy is an, is, a, is an approach that's going to damage the body um, overall system, which, which may recover, yeah. but certainly in the short term it's got a, a very harmful effect as well. Yeah, yeah, so there's a real, um, it's difficult, I mean you can't give an easy answer, there's no point in saying don't have chemotherapy because that doesn't always make sense, but could be the right people, people have really difficult choices to make around that and I think the problem I've, I find these days is that the community expectation is around I, you know, I'll, I'll, I've got cancer, I'm going to be having chemotherapy. Sure. And I think that the, the notion there needs to go from why wouldn't I have it to why would I have it. Sure. So I always advise people to say, well, yeah, inquire about the treatment options. And if something makes sense, then of course you have it, but you need to be convinced and you need to get reasonable figures on that, which you know, the medical profession is good at providing with all the research that they're able to um, sure. have. Looking to that uh, lifestyle approach, there was one particular area of that which you mentioned which has been very central for me and I'm interested to hear how important it was for yourself, which is the emotional side of things, working uh, with our psychology. What role did that play in your own healing and recovery, do you feel? Um, oh, well, I've got an English background, so emotions were never a bigger problem for me. <laughs> 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 I had to learn about them. <laughs> um, well, look, I think the first thing to say is that um, while people should be inquiring as to whether they have, say, conventional medical treatment or complementary and alternative medicine and, and work out what makes sense there, I think in any situation, if you get a cancer diagnosis, right at the start of the diagnosis and what you do about it, it's really wise to take account of your lifestyle. Sure. So, and I think this is a notion too, that people often think, oh, well, I'll do the medical thing and then I'll think about what else. Well, I had the realisation, I'd actually booked in the surgery, I decided to take brain surgery as the option, it was the only uh, choice on the menu as it yeah, were, yeah. and I realised just a few days before that the reason I'd made the decision, it was out of a, a laziness, and I kind of figured, well, I could have the surgery and leave everything else as it is, and I recognised mm. that that was the, the motivation in the going fix. down that route, indeed, and there was uh, more on offer, more opportunity, more potential when we choose to engage with the lifestyle, perhaps, um, as, a, as, as a first option, or, or indeed, I guess the, the middle ground would be to, to have the, the radiation or the surgery or whatever it might be, but also simultaneously to 
adjust, make those adjustments with, with career, with relationship, with whatever's not bringing joy and love and, and, and good energy into our lives. Sure. Yeah, and the other thought is too, if you're going to have surgery or chemotherapy, then you think about what shape are you in to have that treatment, you know, because it's a major treatment. Sure. And if there's time, and you know, the, in most cancer situations, a week or two, you know, delaying a treatment for a week or two makes very little difference in long-term outcomes, you know, sure. that's well understood. But, you know, it may make sense to actually attend to your diet, attend to your state of mind, get over some of the fear and the anxiety that the diagnosis has created so that actually when you have the surgery you're actually in better shape both physically and psychologically and you know your head's together sure. and I, I think sometimes that's not given any account actually in the, in the in the medical system and people go into their initial treatments in a state of panic sure. which means that physiologically actually the body's not actually in the best place to to respond to a major treatment for sure and when you think about it um, you know there's not only recovering say from the surgery but you know you'd like to think if you're having a major surgery like a, a you know brain operation that the whole lot gets taken out but it's quite possible that bits are left behind so you sure. want your body in the best shape to be able to deal with that that's right so if you go into surgery well prepared and you've done sort of conscious things to act, you have yourself in the best shape you can, then that's that's going to be for the good too. Sure. So, um, yeah, I think that that's one of the things I would emphasise is that I think in any situation it makes sense to have a major lifestyle review right at the start of a cancer diagnosis. Uh, and and I, it's, it's, it's really interesting that Cancer is basically a lifestyle disease. We know that it's majorly driven by lifestyle factors. So in that sense, it's very similar to heart disease or type 2 diabetes. Now, if somebody these days is diagnosed with heart disease and the diagnosing physician doesn't talk to them about their lifestyle, like what are you eating, what are you drinking, do you smoke, do you exercise, how do you manage your stress, I, I would think they're pretty well negligent you know, and there would be a case to mount against them. I and mean, type 2 diabetes even more so, um, because not only is, is that a lifestyle disease, but the literature on lifestyle being a very good uh, antidote from stopping pre-type 2 diabetes advancing or reversing it is very strong. And it's pretty good in heart medicine as well. Um, the research is voluminous, isn't it, on both diabetes and heart disease, especially the benefits of diet, of exercise, of meditation, yeah. of, of loving relationships. All these things which might be considered sort of airy-fairy, perhaps, are in fact very well scientifically researched. Yeah, and very potent. You know, mm. Like in type 2 diabetes, the lifestyle, when they compared lifestyle interventions with um, medical drug-related interventions, the lifestyle ones have always come out at least as good and usually better in terms of their efficacy. So it's a, it's a really genuine option, you know, that's, that's a real scientifically validated alternative sure. uh, rather than a, you know, a, a wacky alternative. Sure. So when you come back to cancer, it's like, well, heart disease, you have to be advised and consider your lifestyle right at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes right at diagnosis, and yet most people get diagnosed with cancer, similar lifestyle related disease, and get no advice about it at all. Sure. Now, the, 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 and the other curious thing is the researchers just haven't looked at it so closely. 
mm. which I find amazing. They, they, there's the bits of evidence that are around, and it is steadily accumulating, which links lifestyle interventions with better outcomes with cancer, you know, like li living longer, not just better quality of life, but actually living longer, um, are growing, and yet still it sort of seems like the drug companies have taken up so much territory in, the, in cancer management sure. that there's very little space and very little inclination actually amongst you know, the serious researchers who could give good answers to these questions as to how much does meditation help sure. with survival, how much does dietary change help with survival. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a, a sad reality that the vast majority of research is funded by drug companies, as you point out there, and of course there's no money in finding out that meditation has significant impact upon survival rates, yeah. or, or indeed that eating more vegetables or, or lots of raw organic juice uh, and, and so on, there's, there's no money in it. And no. sadly, that is a strong factor, isn't it, in the, yeah, the information yeah. we're receiving? Yeah, and so it means that to get that research happening, it's either got to come through government or philanthropic groups. And I think this is where the public really needs to wake up. And because so many people, you know, raise money or donate money for cancer research, and it basically, is, the majority of it's been going for the last 30 years into looking in the same place. And you can't think of any other area of human endeavour compared to cancer research that's had so much money put Trillions. into it that, and so little Success. really yeah, significant outcomes. And they're still going down the same line. So I, I really encourage people who are involved with raising money for cancer research to take an active role in, in um, nominating how they want it to be used. And it would be really nice to actually see a dedicated fund, which I'm not aware of as being up yet, that that could actually collect money for lifestyle-based research and give people an avenue where they could reliably know that's where it would, would go. That's a very interesting thought. I know certainly I don't uh, donate to cancer research uh, for, for, for the very reasons you point out there. However, if I was aware that they were looking in uh, so in, into different areas uh, than we have been looking for the last 30, 40 years with no success, then I certainly would give. Yeah. Um, well, because some of the research that's been done in that area, um, well, it's really compelling. Um, you know, just like you mentioned, fruit and vegetables, and there's a good study that shows for women with breast cancer, when they're, when they're diagnosed and first treated, you can measure their plasma carotenoids, and that, that level gives a good indication of how much fruit and vegetable they've been eating. And you can divide those into quarters, you know, the least, the, 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 the group that's been eating the least and the least, and the group that's eating the most. And the women that have the highest 25% of plasma carotenoids um, actually have 40% less relapses than women that are with the lowest group. Wow. Um, women with breast cancer, we know if they exercise half an hour a day, sort of three or four days a week, it doubles or it halves their risk of dying of the illness. And, um, and yet prostate cancer, it's even more than that, actually. Sure. And yet my, my bookkeeper who has, uh, for my company, who has uh, been um, received a, a diagnosis of breast cancer, ha has kept up her dancing and yet was discouraged and, 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 and this was questioned, you know, why you shouldn't be doing this, it's too, it's too much of a strain. <laughs> Whereas I, just from the little research I've done over the last few months, I was like, 
absolutely keep it up. It's yeah, not, yeah. not just the exercise, but the, the relaxation, getting into that flow. This is all great stuff for the mind-body to yeah. step into that place of healing. Well, there's some really, there's both anomalies and sort of misinformation. So if you look at that e issue of exercise and, and, and stick with uh, women with breast cancer, the, the average woman who's diagnosed with uh, primary breast cancer has an 85% chance of being alive um, five years later. Now, if she exercises um, regularly through that time, it halves the risk of dying. So a risk of dying is 15%, so that means it increases her life expectancy by 7.5% in absolute terms. Sure. If she has adjuvant chemotherapy, the figure is it's likely to improve her survival chances by 3.5%, perhaps 4.5% at the most. So it's about half what the exercise will do. Sure. So actually, on the, on the research that's published, exercise is twice as useful as chemotherapy. Now, the interesting thing is, if that woman's in a ho most hospital environments, she will be encouraged and supported to have the chemotherapy and there's a huge sort of network of support that encourages her to do that, including her friends thinking that she's doing the right and noble thing and sure. you know, goes through all that sort of toughness. And yet there's not the same recognition that actually the exercise is twice as helpful actually. And we don't know whether the two things are synergistic or one replaces the other. Sure. And you know, she's often enough I think it's changing in the last year or so, but certainly a year or two back, the women weren't even being told about the exercises being useful, let alone having the support. Because, you know, if you're not well, and particularly if you're going through chemotherapy, exercising is quite challenging. And just for people sure. who are well, to get into the habit of exercising regularly is a trick. And so there's no thought being given to that. And this is where there's this sort of real anomaly. We know from the literature that the exercise is twice as helpful as chemotherapy, but I'd say it gets a tenth of the attention. It's a remarkable thing, particularly when we look at 40 years on, 35 years on, from pioneers such as yourself, that we're still struggling just to look at the, the very stats, look at the research and actually make intelligent decisions based upon what is presented to us. Um, it's been interesting, um, perplexing for me to, to encounter this. One question I wanted to, uh, particularly to pose you because it was um, deeply interesting and uh, quite an, an, a, a key, key part of my own story was when I read You Can Conquer Cancer, uh, which I recommend to, I'd say it's one of the, the two or three if you've been diagnosed with cancer, read You Can Conquer Cancer by Ian Guller, it's an, a, a wonderful work. There was one particular point in there where you pointed out an experience you had, I think you were with a consultant perhaps at the time, and you expressed something along the lines of you felt everyone should have this experience. <laughs> there was obviously something yeah, going such on. Such generosity of spirit. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to, before I ask you to comment on that, the reason that made so much uh, sense to me was that my experience, uh, this was two or three months into diagnosis, uh, in, in a fairly comfortable, you know, no immediate threat of death, it would seem, uh, set of circumstances for myself. I'd experienced the most magical two or three months of my life. It had been so profound and beautiful in so many ways, such a deepening, so much love coming my way, so much perspective, so much, uh, so, so much 
fascination <laughs> really got my attention. And it was slightly peculiar to be having that experience because everyone else, of course, assumed that I was having a very terrible yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when Which I went, could have been the case too, I mean, it's fair indeed. to point out because and, and, say people have different experiences. Oh, of course. So why it was particularly delightful for me to read that was, oh great, here's a guy who 40 years on, 35 years on, is still a 